This is Channel 253. In this episode of Nerd Farmer. It's always about confidentiality and privacy to protect the children. But really what it does is protect the system, right? And we have this billion dollar system driving the you know mass incarceration and homelessness, these things that we all wring our hands over so much. When why aren't we looking upstream at this massive, like it's like shoveling coal into a furnace. Did you know Channel 253 is member supported? I'm producer Doug Mackey, and I hope you will show your support by going to channel253.com slash membership and join. Thank you. This is the Nerd Farmer Podcast, a national conversation through a local lens. This is Nate Bowling, host of the Nerd Farmer podcast, brought to you by Libro FM, coming to you live from our lovely studio, air quote, here in gorgeous Abu Dhabi. Uh, we've been having a series of conversations around education issues and schooling and how it intersects with COVID. And I was intending to go away from this topic uh, on this episode, but then something dropped in my inbox from an old friend. And so, and by the way, when I say old friend, friend from a long time, not an old person, to be clear. Uh, and so I, we have back today four-time show guest, Claudia Rowe. And I'm really excited to have Claudia on. She was one of our very first guests. And I feel like we on the show have walked through a progression of career for her. And so, Claudia, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Always love talking with you, Nate. So we've done this four times now. The first time you were working with the Times with Ed Lab, uh, and then the last time we spoke, you were you, you released a book, and so now you're over at Crosscut, correct? Correct. Crosscut asked me to be an opinion columnist, um, and I started that in February. It is a it, it was something I had thought about for many many years. Opinion, right? The difference between writing news without opinion and completely shedding that and just letting people know what I think finally after decades of people trying to divine it by based on what I write. So that has been a fantastic relief to finally be able to let it fly. I feel like Crosscut is a very underappreciated asset in our community. Like I find that people oftentimes like fetishize or really enjoy what's somewhere else, like the Texas Tribune, right? But then they don't recognize like what they have kind of locally. Uh, I know we've had Melissa Santos on and Mo on back when he was at Crosscut, but just for folks who aren't in the know, could you explain what Crosscut is to the audience? Sure. Um, first of all, I, I should make it clear. I'm not a staffer there. I'm, you know, I'm an occasional or a regular opinion columnist. So I don't know that like the deep inner workings, but basically uh, Crosscut is a nonprofit news site. It's affiliated with the local uh, public broadcast station, the television news um, operation. And uh, they joined several years ago, which I think is really smart and really interesting. And and so they tend to take a less of a breaking news approach and a more, um, it's always been oriented toward a more analytical, then with the uh, more analytical approach to news, sort of more trends. And then um, when they began hiring actually a bunch of people from the Seattle Times in in earnest several years ago, including Melissa Santos and their current editor, Donna Blankenship, the news side and the investigative side really bulked up. They also have some great reporters like David Croman also. 
um, who's looking at uh, police and uh, police corruption, um, really uh, beefed up their news side in addition to sort of the overview analysis that they've always done. Awesome. Okay, so the piece that brought you, that brought you back to the show um, is a piece that you put out. When did this come out? Today, we're, we're talking Sunday on the fifteenth, and it's called sure. "Seattle Public Schools Delta Dysfunction." If I am being a hundred percent honest with the world, I have always found Seattle Public Schools to be a puzzle palace. Like one of my very first like occasions in which I like got on the public stage and talked about education issues was at an event in Seattle where I was talking with Steve Brill and like. I can't make heads or tails of anything that happens in Seattle almost any time. And after reading this piece, I really can't make heads or tails of it now. And so, like, like, help help me help the audience understand, like, what in the hell is happening with Seattle and how have they got themselves in this spot? So, um, Seattle is the largest school district in Washington State, just for listeners who may not know that. Um, it it is always talked about as having about 52,000, maybe 53,000 students. And that's sort of what I went into this thinking and then realized, no, they've actually lost thousands of students um, during COVID because of essentially, I, the point of this piece that I wrote was sort of lack of planning, lack of transparency, lack of communication. And that is a perennial in Seattle public schools. The, the sort of nut that always baffles people is in Seattle, city of incredible wealth, city of enormous brain power and innovation, especially technological innovation. Why is the public school system so kind of leaden, uh, leaden-footed, uh, lumbering, uh, resistant to change, all the things that are the opposite of innovation? This is like the deep, deep mystery of Seattle. Um, but, you know, it, it might be kind of a entertaining uh, party conversation. If we ever get to go to parties again, maybe people will talk about that. But um, <laughs> really, uh, the fact of the matter is that people with means in Seattle more and more simply are are not interested in you know the mystery of of Seattle anymore and just take their kids out and send them to private school and and that is you know that's a perennial um but when i look when i was last uh at, when i was at the seattle times which i left in 2018 and and right before i left i did check this um sort of long running rumor about about Seattle parents and what is the percentage of school age kids who who don't attend the the public schools um, and it last I checked in 2018 it was about 22 percent of school age kids in Seattle um, whose parents say no you're not going to the public school system that is really significant I think in a in a city that prided itself on being sort of a middle class, at one point, a middle-class blue-collar stronghold, right? Public sure. institutions, all that. Actually, 22% of the kids, now perhaps more, um, are attending private schools. Well, and it, it, it's, it reinforces so many themes we've talked about on the show before. Like, 
middle class and white middle class white families are the accelerants of segregation because they disproportionately send their children to schools that are whiter than neighborhoods they live in. And so even if they live in Seattle, a city that's actually increasingly diverse, uh, they're sending their kids to Lakeside School or to Seattle Prep or to O'Day or to wherever else where like their kids basically aren't in the Seattle school system. And so I, 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 I don't know. You, you wrote this piece and then I just couldn't get my head over the idea that they've lost 2000 students. And I for me, there's losing 2,000 students and what that means to schools and communities, but also what it means to funding formulas. And so what is the impact of losing 2,000 students to a district? So in Washington State and many others, um, funding for a school district is based on your headcount, your student headcount. And um, roughly each student in Seattle, very roughly, and I'm, you know, all the fact checkers will attack me, but it's ballpark of like $15,000 per student. Um, I'm mm -hmm. sure somebody can look it up, but uh, sure. uh, it, so 2000 students lost because and those are students whose parents said, forget it. We don't feel safe. We uh, it's not because uh, it's generally not because of the education so much as other things. I will tell you right now, there's fantastic teaching in, in Seattle. It's not it at the classroom level. It's not really about the teachers so much as more about the administration, right? And so a lot of parents have said, forget it. I, I'll enroll my kids elsewhere, not because of the teaching, but because of the issue of safety and planning, transparency, and communication in Seattle schools. So for that, so ballpark 15,000 times 2,000 students, and that's how much the district uh, faces losing in state funds. Let's, a let's lot of money. Through, yeah, for real. Let, let, let's talk through some of the issues. So when you say that they're losing people because parents don't feel safe, I'm assuming you're referring to like uh, with with COVID. So in, in Tacoma, there's a thing called Tacoma Online Learning where they've spun up basically like a virtual school system. And like, yeah, it uses ingenuity, which I'm not really a fan of, uh, but there's also some like online teaching and resources from counselors and staff members. And so essentially they've pulled teachers from schools and have set them up running this online academy. And it has a pretty high capacity. I don't know the number off the top of my head. I probably should, but that's fine. Does Seattle not have an equivalent program in place? Seattle does have um, a program and um, in place. It was initially envisioned as a K-12, same thing, online school. And, mm -hmm. and not like what we did last year where like, it's just Zoom, right? You know, or, or, or Teams or whatever, and a teacher just talking at the screen and the kids listening. It's, you know, supposed to be a, a lot more uh, interactive and, uh, than that. Um, the Seattle model was cut from being a K-12 program down to K-5. And it only has 300 slots, I, I believe 320. Um, so it's tiny in a district of, you know, whatever. Now it's like 51,000 students. Um, 320 are in this little teeny program only for K-5s, the thinking being that anybody um, who's 12 is eligible for the vaccine. But, you know, there's a lot of sixth graders who are in middle school, who can't get vaccinated, and there they are, right? Um, and certainly the full number of Seattle elementary school students is, is way higher than 320, of course. Um, 
so that's it. That's what Seattle has. This tiny little program. They called it a pilot program. They their their motto is go slow to go fast. So while you're going slow, people are leaving the district, you know? And that, that what's so confounding to me is they're, you know, a, a district that constantly cries poverty every single day, and they can't do this and they can't do that because of the money, the money, the money, yet they didn't sort of connect the dots and go, well, if kids leave, then that's money leaving. We can't have that. Let's find a way to keep more kids. I suspect somebody did connect the dots and that there's something else going on here because I cannot believe that what you and I see so easily as like, this seems crazy. Why not have a bigger program? Then you won't have so many people upset and leaving. Uh, you know, somebody must have thought this through and maybe it's because they feel like federal uh, COVID relief money will balance out what what they're losing. I don't know, but there isn't the urgency there. And that's very puzzling in a district that cries poverty every day. I, I want to put a pin in that federal money for a second, but I want to go back to, so have you had the opportunity to speak to parents who have taken their kids out of the district? Uh, some, uh, I got a lot of um, response from parents after the column ran. So yes, I've talked to some, obviously and, and for the column and since. And so, so let's, let's focus on the ones before the column. So the ones before the column, what specific concerns do they express? You know, even more than the lack of a remote option, which is definitely a big concern for parents of young children who are not able to be yet vaccinated. Yes, that's a big concern, but really a deeper concern. And honestly, the reason I wrote this column is um, more of a, more of a, it seems like a position of the district to, to not really communicate to not really interact with parents who are raising concerns and questions. This kind of wall of silence, this kind of arm's length thing, this, uh, as I said in the column, we get near daily communiques from the district about the importance of parent engagement, constant emails. And yet when parents do engage with the district, when it's coming from the parent side with a specific question or request for information, silence, not even thanks for your concern, we'll get back to you. I mean, nothing. Uh, that is even a sort of a, a, a bigger, to me, a bigger problem even than the mechanics of how are you going to keep, keep kids safe. And, you know, there was all this talk about outdoor lunch, right? Like, because eating is, as everybody knows, right? Eating is, a, is <laughs> yeah. a time that's high risk, right, for COVID. So the idea was outdoor lunch, but the district wasn't going to mandate that lunch periods be outside. It was going to be up to each individual school. And there are many schools um, in the south end of the district, which is where I live, by the way, um, that don't have facilities to uh, safely monitor hundreds or thousands of kids eating outside. So then it's an equity issue, right? And it's like, well, some, you know, some campuses can do it and some can't, and it's kind of up to the individual principal. It is not happening. Um, and I, I, there were parents from the South End who pointed this out at a school board meeting. Again, just silence, no response, not even thanks, we'll take that into consideration or thanks, we'll do something, just nothing. Um, that to me is just 
that's just unacceptable. And especially from a district that constantly harps on the value of engagement and how important parents are. Like, that's just bullshit. I'm sorry. So that was the kind of the, the before the column uh, sentiment from parents. What's been the response since the column ran? The response has been gratitude from a number of people, a lot of people who felt simply, like I said, shut out, unheard, like their concerns and voices just just falling on deaf ears. Um, the response has been, thank you. Thank you. You nailed it. Thank you for for pointing this out, um, you know, by implication and sometimes quite explicitly. That also points a finger at other local media because people felt like this wasn't being said. What is what is the deal if the largest school district in the state won't respond to parents? Parents are the customers. Like, what is that? Um, so anyway, so that the response has been gratitude and then much more information, right? More people pointing out, yes, at this school, it's like this. And at this school, it's like that. And um, just more anecdotal information about the, the uh, outbreaks of COVID and what's not happening at lunch and what, you know, no, kids are not safe. And don't tell me about social distancing as some kind of safety measure in a classroom. It's absurd. It's as if people think, it's as if, Officials think people can't think like in an enclosed classroom, <laughs> sitting there for 50 minutes, you know, that's that. That's it. There's no there's no social distancing. But, you know, three feet between students, it is nonsense. That's not happening, nor even if it did, it wouldn't matter. You're in an enclosed classroom for 45, 50 minutes. If there's covid, somebody's going to get it. I probably should have said this at the top, but I want to lay out why this is an equity issue and like why I'm passionate and, up, and wh wh why we're ha having this conversation. If the district, and I'm, I'm not going to sit here and do math out loud because nobody wants to hear me struggle, but if the district is losing, Doug wants to hear me struggle apparently, if the district is losing $15,000 times 2,000 students, that is money that provides programs to, to, to throughout the district. In particular, this is going to impact students in South Seattle and low-income families. Because here's the thing. If there's a budget impact that happens at a wealthier school, like we've talked plenty of times before about PTA dark money. Like they can backfill any budget shortfalls. But this is really going to impact students who are, who are particularly black and low income or uh, recent immigrants in the south end of town where there are not robust PTAs to like backfill this money and support these schools when these budget cuts basically come in response to this unless there's secret federal money like you mentioned, but like I I haven't seen secret federal money myself. So it's $30 million. Let's just talk now Now that we've both said we, we can't figure it out. I just did the math, right? Okay. It's $30 million, very rough ballpark. That is significant money. That is like big, big dollars in any school district. And um. Yeah, one thing that's quite baffling is that the federal money um, gave, uh, funneled uh, $2.6 billion to Washington State for uh, COVID-related mitigations at schools. So I don't know how much of that $2.6 billion Seattle received, but there is lots of federal money for doing things, and that 
that money can pay for anything. It can pay for uh, testing. It can pay for, um, I mean, COVID testing. It can pay for tutoring to help kids who fell off last year during remote school for everyone. It can help, uh, you know, buy tents so that more kids can sit outside during lunch if they're, you know, if if there's an unsheltered whatever area outside. I mean, it could be used in any number of ways, Um, except for it can't be used for staff raises. I I believe that's the one thing, you know, it's no, it's not for that. It's for any kind of COVID mitigation thing, any academic, your, your heating and cooling and that money you know, your air quality, all that, that money is here. That money has been given to Washington state, 2.6 billion. (laughs) Why? I mean, this is enough to make me like, want to get back in the newsroom and like be a real reporter again, instead of just a (laughs) culminator. But you know, uh, uh, you know, Stay tuned, $30 million but. would pay for a great online learning platform, right? $30 million yeah. would pay for facilities for students to eat outside. Uh, yeah, totally. And, and that is, you know, I asked, um, of course I asked the district, so why only, why only 300 slots, 320 they have? Um, oh, it's a staffing issue, a staffing and space issue. That is just, don't tell me that when you're losing $30 million and there's like billions in federal money that's been allocated to help. I, uh, okay. Okay. We'll okay. take a break here. We'll take a break here. Cause like I'm about to have a stroke thinking about this right now. Uh, and when we come back, I want to put this in the context of things I'm seeing nationwide. Uh, and I want to, I want, I want you to help me contextualize this given what we're seeing happen in Oregon and Massachusetts, which are fellow progressive blue states where we're seeing similar dumb shittery. And so we'll be back. This episode of the Nerd Farmer podcast is brought to you by our friends at Libro FM. Libro FM is my audio bookseller of choice. If you join Libro FM today using promo code Tacoma, you can get two books for the price of one for your first month. And then ongoing books will be $14.99 per month. And with that purchase, you get a credit for a book that you can buy of any price. A couple of books that I'm really into right now, uh, I'm currently reading The Club, a book about the EPL. It's a fascinating story about the modernization of football and how English soccer is on a collision course with becoming basically American sports and how fans in England despise it every step of the way. But at the same time, the infusion of foreign money has made it the most competitive soccer league in the world. Another piece that I'm reading right now is our Nerd Farmery's audiobook club selection, An Ugly Truth. And so this is the story of Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook and all of the shortcomings when it comes to data privacy that have happened along the way. And this is our Nerd Farm Reads book. So not only am I recommending this on Libro, but if you read this book and tweet about using hashtag Nerd Farm Reads, we'll use your tweets on the show. The last one I want, to rep- I want to recommend is John Green's The Anthropocene Revisited. So John Green is the creator of PBS's Crash Course series and also is the author of Looking for Alaska. Uh, I interviewed him last year uh, at, a, at a conference for OER, and he has a book basically giving Yelp-style reviews to the entirety of human creation, everything from uh, sunsets to like the Mona Lisa and to a lot of experiences he's had. I, I could not put this book down. Like I listened to it on the bus when I was back during the summer uh, constantly. It's just a tremendous, tremendous listen. So if any of those appeal to you, LibroFM.com, promo code Tacoma, get two books for the price of one. The other thing I want to remind you about is that Channel 253 memberships. 
Channel 253 is a local podcast network telling stories, giving points of view and perspective you won't get elsewhere. We do in-depth conversations about topics that get short shrift in local media. And if you believe in this project and you enjoy listening to the show, we're going to ask you for your support. Memberships are $4 a month or $40 a year. And if you join Channel 253, you get access to Doug's Off the Record podcast and also access to our member-only Slack. And on our member-only Slack right now, there's a conversation happening about the Nabisco strike settling and that Hallie Kanika cannot buy Oreos again. And so channel253.com slash membership. All right. I made it through that barely. Claudia, let's continue this conversation. Okay. I'm struggling getting my head around what I'm seeing happening back home. So we have 2,000 students disappearing from Seattle schools and heading likely to private schools in the region. And then and also homeschooling. Also and homeschooling. And homeschooling. Okay. Well, actually, hold on. Uh, what percentage would you reckon are of the 2,000 of homeschooling? I know you don't know, but like, what's your out of your butt guess? I would say it's not the majority. Um, but, yeah. I, you, you know, and it's, again, as many have observed, that is something that only a certain privileged kind of parent can do. Right. Yeah. Parent who has time for that. The parent who doesn't have to be working. The parent who has the bandwidth in various ways to do that. So I would say it's certainly not the majority, but I, I do think that that is happening, especially with the very, very young kids. Right. Mm-hmm. Like if a, if a mom or dad is staying home while their child is very young and feels like they could probably teach them like early building blocks of numbers and reading, you know, the higher up you get the, you know, the, the more involved homeschooling gets the higher up in grade levels. But um, so I would say it's not, it's certainly not the majority. And I doubt that it's half. I doubt that it's even a quarter, but 10%. Sure. Quite possibly. I, yeah. I learned a lot this summer about nanny homeschool co-op schemes. And it was mm. fascinating to hear about preschools uh, popping up in houses. Okay. So we have this happening in Washington state. We have, and But at the same time, you're telling me there's a massive infusion of federal money coming to schools. If I go down to Oregon, like the, there's talk in Oregon of calling up the National Guard in order to like do basic functions that like the districts can't cover right now because they can't find people. And so in Oregon, basically like the National Guard is preparing to be called up to do like food delivery to schools, for example, because like there's truckers in the National Guard move over to Massachusetts and like we see that the National Guard has been called up because there's a bus driver shortage. And so I'm really struggling to get my head around how, well, first off, this is these are three of the bluest states in the United States. Yeah. There's an, a wave, an ocean of federal money like like coming into the states to take care of, to, to support education throughout COVID. Like how is this gross I, I, it's, it's it's to the point where like is this incompetence? Is this malice? Is this some combination of the bu- of the above? Like how how is this happening right now? This is not like we're not talking about Mississippi struggling through things. Like that's a whole different conversation. Like we're talking about states that apparently or allegedly had their shit together before now. Uh, bureaucratic inertia would be my uh, off the top of the head guess. I doubt it's malfeasance. I doubt there's like you know, intentional stealing going on at that, at that level, that pervasive, I, I would not think that. Incompetence, <sighs> at some, to some degree, and there's just, as we know, enormous inertia in public systems generally, 
and in public schools specifically. And inertia means kind of a, a, I I don't know if it's fear of being attacked for trying something new. I suspect that that's part of it, though that's silly. But I, uh, I, you know, I, I don't think that school systems have shown themselves in general to be like, you know, visionary beacons, you know, ever, right? <laughs> these are not, these are not organizations or institutions that are known for kind of striking out and forging a new path. That is not what public education was ever really designed to be in, in the U.S. Um, and still, you know, whatever 100, 150 years down the road we are here, um, 200 years down the road that we are, that that remains, you know, it's 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 kind of almost a, a a trope at this point to talk about, you know, the factory model of public education, and and you know, a lot of people say that's overblown, but really, the idea of public schools was to sort of form, give people like basic knowledge so that they could like go out and be, you know, like good citizens, and good citizens didn't mean free thinkers, revolutionaries, or bomb throwers, or like innovators, that is not what good citizens meant. Good citizens meant good workers, right? So to some degree, that inheritance kind of frames everything still. And when you have sort of like a, a, a bright energetic light in whatever school district, they, you know, with all kinds of energy, they immediately come up against this inertia, this systemic bureaucratic inertia. It's a, you know, the it's the ocean liner metaphor, right? Like really hard to pivot. And, and, and I do think that there's truth in that. Um, it is, it is for whatever reason, very difficult to pivot. And, you know, unions are part of that discussion as well. Um, but I, I, I really do feel for, for the teachers in a way that I hadn't, uh, perceived before COVID the, the effect on teachers in, in all of this. Can you, can you actually say more about that, please? Yeah. Um, one of the things that struck me most, it will be eye-rollingly obvious to all educators listening to this podcast, but what really struck me right at the beginning of COVID was um, how bereft teachers felt. And I was seeing it in my own kids' uh, classroom and hearing it from teachers, this kind of, um, you know, they don't get much appreciation. They certainly don't get much money. Um, so what, what, what is the reward for an educator? And it, and it really is the kids, right? The energy from the kids, the interaction with the students, the seeing kids' minds open and grow. That is a huge uh, thing, a huge driver, a huge motivation for educators. It's a real thing and they get energy from it. Um, and so I, this sort of sense of there being bereft when they couldn't really interact with students in, in the way that they had been accustomed to. That really struck me. Um, and then as COVID progressed, sort of the, the bureaucratic weight upon teachers and all that they have been asked to, to do and take on simply with pivoting to online platforms, say, last year. Um, I don't think it was easy. And I think that there's an enormous range of um, facility with technology and, and energy for uh, rebuilding the way you teach, if you're going to have to teach on, on through a, uh, a screen. I think that that is not what a lot of people signed up for. That's not 
that's not what they're into. Um, and now that they and now they have to do that to be good teachers. I, I think that this has been a massive, you know, like tectonic shift under their feet. And that's not a small thing. It's a big thing. I don't expect from I don't expect that like for you to publish a piece and then somebody from Seattle schools to call you up and be like, OK, Claudia, here's the deal. So I'll ask this. What has their public communication been since this piece was published? There was an email from, I guess, a district-wide email or to all parents from the interim superintendent that said were, it didn't specifically reference the piece, of course. Right. Um, but, you know, here, you know, we're doing all we can to keep students safe and, you know, just the same rattling off the same litany. I'm sure it's very well intended. But again, it didn't speak to the concerns that were so evident um, coming out from this piece, this this issue about communication, transparency. Um, it was sort of we're doing this and we're doing that. But it was like the same old crap, honestly. I mean, it's it sounded nice. But and then there was um, a piece in The Seattle Times where the president of the school board said. Again, not exactly speaking to the issues in the piece said. Well, for those parents who have kept their kids out of school since the beginning of school, kind of in a like a limbo, right? They're not part of the district's remote program, but they're scared to send their kids into the regular schools. Like, and and those people felt that they were being they had been threatened of you know with disenrollment, right? You didn't send your kid to school; they're not anywhere. Like, they're not enrolled, right? Um, there was something from the board president saying, well, we're working on that and you're not going to be disenrolled, maybe because of the money, right? Like, who knows, right? Maybe because of parent concerns, but maybe she's like, oh yeah, the money. Um, anyway, so again, quite vague. We're working on it. Working on it. Dude, this has been going on for 18 months. Like, what do you mean working on it? I I'm sorry to say that word and sound so juvenile, but 18 months. I'll tell you that at the beginning of COVID, I had a principal talking to me saying, there is not planning happening. And she was saying at the district level, the planning is not there. I don't know if that's because of magical thinking and this will blow over and we'll just go back to normal. It does kind of seem like they're in this like waiting mode, this position of just waiting for the storm to pass and then we can just be normal again as if normal was good, which it was so not good. But anyway, um, you know, when a, when a, a veteran principal, a thoughtful person is saying there is not planning happening for how to teach, how this is going to work, you know, and that has not changed. That that's what it looks like. There just is inadequate planning. Why? I cannot fathom. I do not know. I know that you're not a beat writer, but you are an opinion columnist now, so you can sling some some some, some hot takes here. I, I I just wonder what is your feeling? What does it make you think about the fact that Seattle schools once again as an interim superintendent for like the twelfth time in the last five years? It feels like. What is my thinking about that? Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, Seattle has kind of a tradition. So first of all, speaking, going macro here, really, really high turnover at 
at, at district administration levels. So high turnover among school superintendents is endemic, is typical in large public school systems. It might, it is, it is less typical in, you know, a little small town school district, right? With, you know, a thousand, 2000 kids, those superintendents sometimes stay for decades, but in large urban public school systems, last I checked, it was like, you know, five years was, was typical and even seen as like, whoa, five years, you've stayed five years. That's pretty good. Um, So high turnover is frequent, but Seattle is an outlier in terms of really high high turnover, and that certainly has to do with um, this sort of endemic dysfunction between. There's constant fighting between board members and between school board members and the administration. That's happening again. Um, I just have heard about some sort of investigation. I don't, you know, it probably cost hundreds of thousands of dollars to conduct. Um, that that is that stems from uh, allegations of racial harassment and retaliation. Those are allegations made by uh, school district administrators against some board members. So now there's fighting on race issues between high level administrators and high level school board members. And that's just like the oldest saw in the book in Seattle, like constant, constant fighting. And I think that um, board members get constantly frustrated with the person they've hired to be superintendent and superintendents get constantly frustrated with the non-professionals, the non-professional educators, the board members who may be uh, there for whatever reason, um, you know, whatever, whatever their agenda or ideology may be. The, surely the professional educators, the superintendents get very, very frustrated with board with board members. So the prior superintendent, Denise Juneau, was out of there before her contract was up. The, you know, the board said, oh, we're done with her and we're going to buy out her contract before the, before her time is up. But I know that Denise Juneau was like, she didn't seem sad about it. I'll put it that way. Um, yeah. you know? um, so, you know, when I was a really young reporter, I used to, to, you know, before I even lived in Seattle and I would look at school districts in New York state and I was constantly trying to understand the relationship between these kind of bureaucratic battles in district headquarters and like what goes on in a school, in a classroom. How does this politics and backbiting affect the kids, right? This is a very difficult path to draw, like to connect the dots is difficult. Yet as a parent, you can feel it. You can feel when there's just sort of an air of seat of the pants, instability. Um, and that does filter down in a really difficult to codify way. But I do believe that it that it actually does have an effect mostly on, you know, principals who affect teachers in the classroom. Right. I'm just sitting here thinking about the numbers and all this. And there's one question I probably should ask at the top that I want that in, you don't have the information for educated guests, but like I just spitball. It's a podcast, whatever. There's 50,000 kids in the district. 2000 have left. There's 300 slots in the online learning for basically only the, the littles. 
how many parents want an online option for their students? Like right. if there was if there was a bottomless well of online teaching that Seattle was offering, uh, how many people in the city would take them up on it? Right. I did ask um, that question of the district. Um, what I heard was that there were uh, they got interest from 500 families when they initially uh, put out the word that there would be this remote option. Now, that was, that was surely limited because they made it clear last spring when they put this word out, saying, if you're interested in a remote option, let us know. They said, you have to commit for the full year, you know, and mm -hmm. you may not be able to return to your old school afterward, right? Like there's no guarantee that when remote school is over and we're all free again, um, that that you can go back to your neighborhood school. So like the strictures were pretty firm at, at the outset, surely limiting interest from parents in signing up in attempting to apply for this remote option. However, sure. um, the district communications person told me that they had interest from, he said, ballpark 500 um, families. That doesn't mean 500 kids, right? It could be a mm. thousand kids, right? Um, I suspect that as as this opening has been um, kind of rocky, I suspect that the interest is is increasing, you know, maybe among parents who were like, oh, I don't need that. But now maybe I do. I mean, there was also enormous question at the time of, you know, will a vaccine be available for younger kids and when? Right. And we don't know. So um, that 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 roughly answers your question. Um, you know, would would 500 families now opt for the for for the remote school if they could? Yeah, probably. Well, but but you, but you you nailed it. Like they framed it as the worst possible option, right? So like you have to do it for a year. There's no guarantee you can get back, and still 500 families. And like you said, that represents more than 500 children because families have more than one kid. So a thousand families essentially might've won this option and they opened 300 slots. It's, it's insane. It's insane, but we're being a dead horse here. Claudia, I'm really curious. Like you seem like somebody who's always on the move. What are you working on right now? Um, I am working on a new book that I'm very excited about, which tackles foster care in a way that I have not seen. Um, I, you know, have, have covered, youth issues for a very long time, whether it's public schools or juvenile justice or um, child welfare issues. And I was sitting in court actually uh, two, what is it, about two and a half years ago, um, just for a completely different reason. There, there was a sentencing going on of a teenage girl in Seattle for murder. And I was there actually to listen to somebody who was supposed to testify in her sentencing testify for the prosecution, actually, which was asking for this teenage girl to be locked up for 24 years. Um, and so, I, you know, I, I've written about crime a lot and I, I was sort of familiar roughly with the case, but I wasn't there focused on the case. I was focused on this person who was going to testify. And I got really interested because I was listening to the prosecution call her, you know, broken and um you know there was 
murmurs of like a, you know, budding sociopath and all this stuff. And as you know, I have written quite a bit about um, sociopaths. And so I was, you know, mildly curious and I began looking into this girl's case. She got a 19 year sentence. And the more I looked at it, the more I thought, this is not a crime story. This is a foster care story. This is the result of foster care. And I had known quite a bit about foster care and the atrocious outcomes of that multi-billion dollar system. We nationally spend, you know, depending on how you count, anywhere from like five to $30 billion annually on foster care. And yet less than 3% of kids who've been in foster care ever get a four-year college degree and well over 25% do some time in lockup, whether juvenile, you know, whether juvie or jail or prison. Well over, you know, by some measures, 59% do some time in lockup, whether during their youth in foster care or in their young adulthood. Half of kids in foster care get some kind of lockup and less than 3% go to, you know, graduate college. And for this, we're spending billions of dollars. It just became astounding to me. Like, wow, we're paying a lot of money for to drive our prison and homelessness population. Like about a third of kids in foster care also um, spend some time homeless after foster care. So like that to me was this surging, screaming kind of under the radar system, right? Oh, we don't, we don't, talk about these kids to protect their privacy, right? It's always about confidentiality and privacy to protect the children. But really what it does is protect the system, right? And we have this billion dollar system driving the you know mass incarceration and homelessness, these things that we all wring our hands over so much. When why aren't we looking upstream at this massive, like it's like shoveling coal into a furnace, right? Like foster kids. So, um, so from this like, moment sitting in court watching this teenage girl get sentenced, I sort of pulled way back and thought, oh, wow. Um, you know, there have been books about foster care, but they are often kind of, um, they're often written by sociologists um, mm -hmm. and they have a very kind of uh, sometimes a, a sort of traditional, uh, even journalistic approach. But I wanted to do something that really sees it through the kid's eyes, like more like I, you know, more narrative, more novelistic, but true, right? You know, this is, it's going to, this is a nonfiction book. So it will take, um, we'll sort of follow a couple of uh, young people, but not only, um, not only young people, because the effects of foster care last, you know, lifelong, right? Um, there are people who have life sentences in prison who are there right this minute because of crimes they committed either while in or immediately aged out of foster care, right? Like as a result of a system that, that did not help them in any way and in many ways per perhaps created the um, lack of ability to, to interact the way, you know, civil society requires. You know, at the very best, kids come out of foster care and they simply cannot uh, kind of hold a well-paying job, right? They cannot, um, in many cases, they, they have really poor educations because they've moved around so much, right? So they've lost learning. They don't go to college and they come out of foster care um, unable to form attachments. Like with brain uh, 
neurologically unable to form the kind of attachments that make for a functional adult. And I don't mean like romantic attachments. I mean like ways of dealing with people, right? Ways of navigating frustration, disappointment, right? The sort of behavioral response to that among so many foster youth is what leaves them teetering on the edge of homelessness or in homelessness or committing crimes or doing whatever they can do to, you know, um, feed themselves. And you can imagine what those things might be, right? So this is this screaming uh, population that is, that is to me, driving all these large expensive systems that we freak out about all day long and we never look at this. So that's what the book is about. I've been told to never ask an author when the book's going to be finished, so I won't. But I'll promise folks that when you've published the book, we'll have you on. That would be fantastic. Claudia, I, I appreciate your advocacy. I appreciate your voice. I appreciate your candor and passion for all of this. If people want to follow you on the socials, where should they look? On Twitter, um, I, I have to say I am pretty active on Twitter. Um, so at Row Report. And yeah, I mean, I'm very findable that way. Um, yeah, you can write to me on Facebook too if you want. I don't look at Facebook nearly as, as often. Um, very findable on Twitter. And uh, read Crosscut. Yep. I was going to say, don't forget to find her byline on Crosscut. And then also, uh, I donate to Crosscut. If you are a Channel 253 member, uh, Crosscut has provided us with many a guest and great reporting. They deserve support too. Uh, Claudia, thank you so much again for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Always love chatting with you, Nate. Um, have a great week. Yeah, you too. Wakanda for y'all. Wash your damn hands. Get vaccinated, stupid. Just take the jab. Shut up. Yeah, you. You who's listening right now going, oh, he doesn't mean me. I mean you. Take the jab. Go Sounders and, and convict the police that killed Manuel Ellis. Channel 253 is a member-supported podcast network. I'm producer Doug Mackey, and I'm asking you to become a member and show your support. Go to channel253.com slash membership to join. Thank you. I'm currently reading The Club. It's how the English Premier League became the richest, uh, most sh- Dang it, Doug, hold on. I'm currently reading The Club. How the English Premier League became the richest, wildest, most disruptive sports force in Nick. I can do this. Take three. I'm currently reading The Club, a book about the EPL and how it became a wild, dysfunctional, disruptive force in politics. Oh, fuck it. What am I doing? I'm stupid now. I'm sleepy. Okay. The blooper's going to be 10 minutes long. The blooper's going to be longer than the show. Okay. The other thing I want to remind you of is that Channel 253 is a labor of love. We are local. um. Nerd Farmer is part of the Channel 253 Podcast Network. Check out our other shows. Interchangeable White Ladies, Give Me the Mic, We Art Tacoma, Move to Tacoma, Taco Man, Flounder's B-Team, Crossing Division, Citizen Tacoma, and What Say You? This is Channel 253.